word. I'll let you be seated in a minute, but let's continue to stand for the reading of God's word, a short section of Paul's epistle to the Romans as he's writing, seeking their support to go to Spain to deliver the gospel to those people that they too might hear and believe. Paul has presented to the Roman church the gospel, man's inadequacy to save themselves either by running from the law or depending solely upon the law for salvation. Concluding in chapter 3, this is an application of all that has come before. Begins with a question. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you this morning and we would ask that by your spirit, your word would dwell richly in our hearts. You might bring life where there is death, understanding where there is a lack thereof, that our hearts and our minds might not be distracted this morning, but that we might focus upon you the author and perfecter of our faith, these things we pray in your holy name. Amen. Now, children, I know that services like these where we have the Lord's Supper uh, and the pastor uh, preaches a sermon every time there's an element in worship, and that's my own fault. I get excited. And then there's also baptism. You think, oh, man, how long is the service going to be? And I, I want you to reorient the way you think in that regard. Um, I don't know what your favorite fellowship meal theme is. I think it's whatever fellowship meal is in front of me. I think maybe it's brunch, though. I want you to think of a worship service in which every element of God's means of grace, preaching, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and even the fellowship of the saints and prayer is like the greatest fellowship meal theme. God wants to feed us richly this morning. And so I want you to have and continue to have an appetite now for the preaching of the word of God. Paul is here in Romans chapter 3 reaching a, a glorious applicatory conclusion as to how we are to think of ourselves in relationship to all that he has just written. Yes, Romans is one of those letters that builds and builds and builds, but there are particular sections built upon particular themes, and Paul does shift in the book of Romans to various themes. Now in chapter 4, he'll build on what he has said in chapter 3, but for now, there is a question. Why does a pastor write or ask questions? Kids, why do your teachers ask questions in class? Maybe they've seen you not been paying attention. Have you been listening? Do you know? Perhaps what they're trying to do is ascertain, that is determine for themselves, they're trying to figure out whether or not you've heard and understood 
what has come before. This is what Paul does throughout his writing, and especially here in Romans chapter 3, he puts a question to the reader in light of what is already written. If the gospel comes to us and is made effective unto righteousness solely by our resting upon Christ by faith, what part of this system do you get to say, look at what I have done, look at what I have contributed to? In fact, what Paul comes to is the inevitable conclusion as it relates to free grace. Three points that I want to make this morning. Where is boasting? Where is boasting? The law of faith, the law of faith, and the law established by faith. The law established by faith. Let's look at the first point. Where is boasting? That inevitable conclusion drawn from the doctrinal things said already is this. Where is boasting? It is, in a word, excluded. Now, Paul will get to why, in a moment, it is excluded. But for now, we need to understand that boasting is excluded. But it is not excluded through works of the law. In fact, if salvation were by works of the law, then boasting could not be excluded. In fact, this is a principle we find even in our own lives as it relates to work and reward. Think of that time you've done something great. Perhaps you have spent an entire season playing a sport. And at the end of that season, the coach acknowledges all your hard work. And they hand you that most improved. Or that sportsmanship award. And you put that award on your wall. Why? Because you're proud of it. You worked hard for it. There is a kind of boasting then that is not unrighteous by nature. Here, the kind of boasting that Paul speaks of, though, is inherently unrighteous. Not all pride is wicked, but if we for a moment think that salvation comes by works of the law, then we boast vainly, improperly, because such a thing is not possible. Now, in John Murray's commentary on the book of Romans, which is a wonderful commentary, it is uncertain, he writes, whether the apostle has in mind the Jews specifically as one given to boasting in his peculiar privileges and good works which afforded, in his esteem, acceptance with God, works righteousness. Vanilla works righteousness. In contrast with the Gentiles, or whether Paul is thinking in more general terms of all self-gratulation on the part of men. But even on the latter alternative, there is marked pertinence to the Jew. Now, Paul has been writing for some time about the Jews and where they err in terms of their approach to salvation, that it is not by circumcision or works of the law that you or I are saved because we are conceived and born into sin. And though we can perfectly obey in this life, not really, but even if we were, it doesn't matter. We are still under Adam, under the curse, under the fall. And so every sentence that God must hand down to men, whether they are really bad, only semi-bad, pretty good, 
or better than their neighbors, is condemned, guilty in their sins. And so it is neither by the law that boasting is excluded, nor is it by works or wisdom. Faith is the only thing that excludes boasting. So what is boasting? Boasting is the idea that I am able of my own accord with my own hands and my own heart and my own mind to attain for myself that which God alone can give by grace. Every false religion then is an expression of man-centered pride and boasting. By default, boasting is inevitable where relying upon the grace of God is absent. It cannot be avoided if man does not seek salvation solely by the righteousness of Christ given to him by faith. And the reason why the Lord is God of both Jew and Gentile is because he is the sole architect and accomplisher of the salvation presented to men. You and I have nothing to bring to our justification. Nothing. And in fact, if we were to bring it, it is completely and utterly unnecessary and it is unwelcomed. It is itself an expression of human pride. Boasting is therefore not just an expression of chest-puffing pride. It is the religious act of depending on something or someone else other than the Lord. Jews rely upon the law, Greeks upon wisdom. And you see a lot of wisdom. Stoicism is one of those Greek-like approaches in which we endeavor to apply our minds and our hearts to depriving ourselves of the sensory goods of this earth, thinking that in depriving ourselves that will make us righteous, that it will benefit us. Now, there is some place to depriving ourselves from certain goods, at least for certain times. But is that enough to speak up in the law court of heaven and say to God, look at what I have not done? Or, look at what I have done? The question, sort of colloquial put, is how many old ladies does it take? How many do you have to help across the street to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Right? Is that not the question for us? How many good sermons must I preach? <laughs> Just one. Well, <laughs> how many? How many selfless acts? How many times must I unload the dishwasher or give to the poor? <clears throat> Is there a point where our obedience to the law of God gets us into a state of holy reconciliation before God. Paul has said already, no. Instead, we are but helpless beggars before the door of God's house, pleading one thing to enter. Christ who is the door. And that door is open to us by his shed blood, by our resting upon him by faith. Boasting is therefore done away with. 
By what law? Not the works law, nor not the law of works. But here, look at verse 27, the law of faith. Now, there are a couple clauses here in this section that may be a bit challenging. Here, law of faith is not works of faith. Otherwise, Paul is merely contradicting himself. Here, law of faith refers to a system or a principle. The order or principle of faith, therefore, excludes something. It excludes boasting. It excludes our saying, look at what I have done. God has shown me mercy and it creates a kind of pharisaical caste system in which a religious person trusts not upon the mercy of God, looking to Christ upon the cross, but relying solely upon himself or herself in obedience to the law of God. And so Paul has a conclusion. In light of the fact that the system of faith, which Paul has already outlined in chapter 3, is the thing that excludes boasting, we conclude, verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now, the law of faith is the sledge that smashes the hard rock of human pride. And many of you sitting here, like me, oftentimes refuse to have the hard hammer of God's word smash our pride to bits. We refuse to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's clear word. We are able even to come to church on Sunday mornings and hear the word of God, and we remain unmoved by that word because our hearts are full of boasting, not humility. In fact, boasting itself, our pride, is the primary impediment to true, genuine, lasting repentance. Of course, our lack of repentance with regard to the things that we love, those sinful things that we don't want to give up, but our hearts not being transformed and moved by the word of God, we remain in those sins. And when we come to the word of God, we see that his word demands something. And we refuse to give in to the word of God demands because we want to remain unchanged and unchallenged, unmoved in our sins. And the question put to us is, do we boast? Do you boast? That is to say, do you possess pride, the kind of pride that prevents you from facing your own sin? Trusting not in Christ, but in your own works. The testimony of that is this. I will accept portions of the word of God as legitimate, but not others, in order that I may continue to live the life that I want to continue to live. But the law of faith concludes that a man is justified, made right before God, and that all of his problems which he faces in life ought to be properly ordered by first having his accounts rightly settled before a holy God. In whom will you trust when the bills come due? 
It doesn't matter how much fiat currency is in your bank account. It doesn't matter how narrow or wide your waistline is. It doesn't matter how cunning or smart your neighbor thinks you are. Right now in the church today, there is an obsession with the intellectual approach to the Reformation. And we think by knowing and quoting and having commentaries and books upon our shelf, boasting, potentially, this means that we are a, a certain kind of mature, sophisticated Christian. My call to you today is to stop living, stop boasting, stop judging yourself by a standard that is a broken yardstick that only goes to 22 inches. How many of you actually know? <laughs> How long a yardstick is? By what standard? So the law of faith says that you have nothing to plead before the throne of God. And for this reason, there can be no other sentence but guilty. The law of faith excludes, excludes boasting. But it also offers something. In light of the sentence of God given to all sinful men, there we sit. Rehearse this in your mind. You're there in the throne room of God, and you must give an account for everything you have done and not done that is a violation of God's word. What will you say in that day? Because judgment has not yet taken place yet, has it? One day Christ will sit in judgment. As I said even last week, the books will be open. And there every deed, righteous and unrighteous, is recorded in comparison to his perfect revelation, the word of God. And the question will be, Joby, what do you have to say for yourself? I heard that question a lot growing up. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. Can we just get this over with? But as a child, what was the penalty? At most, it was a good several whacks. For the one who stands before God guilty in their sins. And hell awaits. The question is, what will you plead? The Lord, as you can see, I did this on this and such a day. See, I have a journal recording all my good deeds. Will Christ take that book into account? Will it be present? As he rules as judge, no. Only the grace of God, the righteousness of Christ, freely given, fully imputed, even it is given now, you will possess it one day in the future. The law of faith, the system of faith, the principle of faith offers rest in the righteousness of Christ. And every comfort and confidence that in the day of judgment, we will not want to boast, save in the work of Christ on our behalf. That is the law of faith. And you must understand that. It smashes our pride, but it's a gracious smashing. Saints, do you remember that day Perhaps you do, perhaps you don't. Some of you who may have grown outside of the church, not hearing the word of God preached at a young age, when you heard the gospel for the first time, 
And that burden was lifted from your shoulders like a great weight gone. It is not up to me. It is solely Christ's righteousness imputed to me whereby I am counted righteous before a holy God. But that is not the last time Paul speaks of the law here, is it? Now what he does in verses 28, 29, and 30 is he concludes that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, which means both Jew and Gentile before God are the same. God does not count circumcision or uncircumcision as in the pro or con column unless you rely upon circumcision to be judged. Then it is in the con column. But you are not more righteous. You have nothing else to boast in if you were or were not circumcised. But because there is one God who will justify both the circumcised, the Jew, and the uncircumcised, the Gentile or Greek, through faith, all that matters is faith. But then we come to verse 31. And we ask ourselves, what does Paul mean? Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law and you think, wait, 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 wait. What do you think Paul's conclusion would be here? I, running the risk of doing something dangerous, as you're reading verses 27 through 30, and you get to the end of verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we... Abolish the law, right? Is that not the next logical thought? Well, what is Paul doing? After all of this, what seems to be setting law and gospel apart from one another, he is in one sense. As it relates to our justification, law has no power to justify. Christ's keeping of the law, Christ's submission to the law, his suffering under our disobedience to the law? Yes, but not ours. His keeping of the law for us. That is why we say justification is a free gift. And we need only rest. Therefore, faith is an instrumental cause as it rests upon Christ for our salvation. So what is Paul getting at here? What is Paul teaching us about the law? Well, already he has said, I'm a sinner in need of saving. He has said, God alone offers that salvation freely, graciously, but I must rest in Christ. He has also said, there is therefore no reason to brag or boast in any of our own righteousness. That is why it is easy for us to think that Paul would conclude that faith abolishes the law. Yet this would be an error and we must avoid it. Now let me give you... A little more context. When Paul is writing to the Gentile and the Jew in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he is in essence saying this as it relates to salvation. Listen very carefully. You have put the cart of obedience before the horse of justification. You have in essence said that I will suppress and exchange the truth of God for a lie. I have adopted this false religion that I think in this we shall be saved. All religions, listen, all religions amount to us endeavoring to cover ourselves before God and say, see, I'm clean. I'm righteous. 
And what we have done is we have put law-keeping, even if it's a law of our own making, morality, obedience, our own merit and strength, before the declaration of righteousness. But God cannot look at the cart of our filthiness and say, clean. That is putting the cart before the horse. Here, Paul wants to put the two in their proper order. The horse, in this particular illustration that I have created, is the declaration that you and I are righteous before God through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, received and rested upon by faith alone. The cart is our obedience, which rightly is connected to, but is driven and it follows that declaration of righteousness. <laughs> We're really talking about an ordo salutis, which is just a fancy Latin term for order of salvation, which you can probably guess without me even saying it. We are justified through the righteousness of Christ, but it is not only enough to know what justification is, it is important to understand the connection between justification and sanctification. So what Paul is saying is this, the law is not done away with, but rather moved in its emphasis and role. Boasting puts the cart before the horse, clinging to Christ and his righteousness puts them in their proper order. Law keeping does not come first. Reward weeping comes second. Does that make sense? This is why every false religion, every cult, connects their eschatology, that is, what will happen to man on the last day of human history, to what man does now based upon his own good works. Right? If you're a faithful Muslim, you get 40 virgins. That's the promise. If you're a faithful Mormon, you get to populate a whole planet with a bunch of women. Have you noticed how all these cults promise the same thing? A perverse, a perverse promise? But all of it is tied to what? Solely what you do. In fact, in the 16th century, there was a, a fairly saucy monk turned reformer named Martin Luther who wrote 95, let's call them memos, to the church of the day. And he said, do you know that there is a man among you who is going from town to town and he is taking people's money and he is saying that in exchange for cash, well, whatever they used, right, gold, you can work off sinful debt for your relatives in purgatory. <laughs> Okay, oh, let's do this thing. Let's get a television show and let's start selling the blessings of God and saying this, that the mercy and grace of God can be bought for mere money. That is damnable heresy because it not only cheapens the grace of God, but it leads people not out of purgatory, 
but straight to hell. Why? Because it changes the object of our faith and how we ought to rest in something that cannot save, or some, someone who can save into something then cannot. Your soul will be delivered by this piece of paper that is published by the Fed. Is that not what we often believe? That our souls, our futures, our hope is in the stuff of earth? No. Instead, what Paul is saying is this. Justified freely by the grace of God, we are saved from something, but we are also saved for something. And so the moral law still functions as God's revealed and authoritative will for your life. But if you endeavor to keep the law apart from the grace of God, you fail to obey on two counts. You've neither kept the law or honored God. Only the true Christian then can keep the law. That is one made alive, having been justified to the grace of God by faith, your faith. All saving faith is therefore a lively and active faith. Let us not forget that the law is good, that only the good can love and keep it, and that no man can hope to appease God with law alone. God cannot and will not accept it as sufficient for restoration and reconciliation. What Paul is saying is your tendency, when you see that the law is not counted as righteousness before God as judge, will be to say, well, then what's the point of the law? Because the law is still given for our good. It is given to the righteous. In fact, as one who professes Christ, the law is especially for you. And so, dear saints, this morning we have seen that when the law is given, the principal part of our standing before God, it perverts it, for it seeks to make it our boast. Rather, we may believe upon Christ, seek his glory in all things, understanding then that all the law we keep is not a record of self-wrought faithfulness to him. It is what? It is merely what we owe as those who have been rescued. It is an act of devotion. It is an act of promoting his glory and his righteousness in this world. And so let us then love, keep, serve, live by his law as those without boast, save in the death of Christ our Lord. Let's pray.